Man, it is so good to not just be back, but to be standing before you. Uh, it's been a while since I've been able to do that. For those of you who don't know, I tore my Achilles on April 21st, and um, I've been scooting around for quite a bit. Last few times I preached, which was some time ago, I was preaching from a chair, which apparently made me more compassionate. So today I'm standing, and you know what that means. Um, but having said all that, I just wanted to say thank you all for being you. Uh, I, it was, we were finally at the point where after 10 years of consecutive ministry, uh, Melissa and I just need to take a bit of a break and, uh, and reset. And so we went, uh, excuse me, we went to uh, went a couple vacations and actually three really good ones. And I was looking back on pictures this morning being like, dang, man, we had a good time in June. And so, um, but nothing compares to being back here today. So number one, thank you for being you. Thank you for filling the gaps. Thank you for uh, serving and standing in and doing what you have uh, been known to do. So uh, that's my first thing is thank you. Really appreciate you guys doing that in my absence. Not that it depends on me, but sometimes when you do this long enough, you start to think it depends on you. And so it's good to get away and realize it does depend on you and that you guys are the people of God. This is truly the church. You are the church and you will do what God has called you to do, which is exercise your gifts, love him and love one another really well. And so we know, I know that y'all have done that. Uh, I know that you've done that because you're here and you're still here and we continue on. So number one, thanks. Number two, it is really good to be back before you, being able to exercise my gifts. Um, I don't know about you, but when they're reading that scripture, like I start getting adrenaline pumping. I don't know. And I heard somebody, when we got done, somebody goes, yikes to what Jesus was saying. Because that is like, okay, we've just now turned the page here now, Jesus. Um, in John 8, everything changes. He goes from really explaining who he is to now he is, he's putting on, he's like Manny Pacquiao last night. He's ready to go. You don't know Manny Pacquiao fought yesterday, last night, won, knocked down his opponent. If you don't know, I, I didn't know either until this morning, but there you go. But nonetheless, he is like Manny Pacquiao. He is, he is putting on the gloves and he's no longer... Uh, gentle Jesus that we remember, that, we, that we've heard about when our kids, because he's never really been that. Instead, in John 2, he flipped over tables, and now in John 8, he is confronting those that say they believe in him. In John 8, verse 30, this is what we read. 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him, in verse 30, as a summary to all that he had just said, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. There's no transition here from those that believe in him to anyone else. Instead, he is addressing those who say they believe. And I just wonder, have you ever found yourself in a situation where someone has told you that they believe in Jesus, that they are believers in the same Jesus that you believe in, and yet you find it Hard to believe. Have you, ever, have you ever gotten yourself into that situation? Like, say, for instance, at a wedding in Colorado, and you say, so tell me about your premarital, and they didn't get any premarital, and so tell me about your pastor, and they hired some pastor, and so tell me about what your plan is to continue to grow in the faith. Well, we want, we, we clearly, we have faith, we just don't practice it. So, so what do you say? What do you say when someone says, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church? What do you say when there's this false dichotomy of that people that want to pick and choose about this Jesus. If you've not been in that situation, let me invite you and let me perhaps remind you 
of our summer challenge. It's the summer challenge that I put before you back before I left, and that was this, that before September 1st, you invite a non-believing neighbor or friend over to your home, you share a table, and you simply have a spiritual conversation with him. You awkwardly lean into that which you have not practiced in a while, and you practice hospitality, and you cook them a meal, and when they offer to clean up, you say no, and then you just enjoy them, and eventually by dessert, you ask them about their spiritual life, and you just see where it goes from there. Hopefully, they're non-believers, and you invite them over, not just your friends, but those that truly need Jesus. Why would we want you to do that over the summer? And I pray that you are pursuing those things, at least praying at this point, who are you going to invite over? Because next month, you hopefully will have that dinner, invite that person over, and perhaps they tell you over, de- over dessert, well, I believe, but I'm not really a practicing believer. What, what are you going to say? Jesus is going to help us today. Because I believe that this is the pressing, pressing issue of our day. I believe that, that, that this dichotomy that we've set up of, I believe in Jesus, but I don't follow him, is the pressing issue of our church. This church, much less our broader culture, those that intellectually affirm the person of Jesus and yet actually deny the lordship of Jesus as they and as we walk. See, we live in the Bible Belt, and yet we are illiterate in the Bible. We're overchurched and eagerly entertained, and yet we are under-gospeled and shrug off any form of spiritual discipline. We're in a culture that is absolutely infatuated with affirming Jesus with our words, but denying him with our lives because it's culturally acceptable to go to church. But one day, friends, in our lifetime, it won't be. This will be the odd thing to do on Sunday morning. And in fact, statistics will tell you that we're really close to that being the odd thing to do. Go to, go to snooze on a Sunday morning and you're going to realize, wow, that wait is, is a lot longer here on Sunday morning. If you don't know what snooze is, God bless you. We pray for you. But Jesus today is going to answer this question. What do we do when someone says they believe, but they do not follow? What do we do? This is a great challenge for believer and unbeliever, for we both have a need to respond. And so I'll just say out of con- in context here, we are picking up in the middle of dialogue. Tyler did a great job last week of explaining, I am the light of the world, and it started in verse 12 of John verse 8, and he starts off by saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And at the end of this conversation right here in verse 30, there were many that believed. And so we pick up in the middle of this conversation in verse 31. We go to 47, and we're going to end in 47, although we shouldn't. But for time's sake, we're going to end in 47, and we'll pick up 48 all the way to 59 next week, because it's this one big conversation that we're having over three weeks. When the Pharisees heard, I am the light of the world, who follows me will will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, instead of self-examination, instead of that time of confession, instead of realizing they actually have no light without Jesus, they think to themselves, well, I'm not that bad. This sounds like a good idea. I'm in. I walk in darkness anyways. I don't sin on a regular anyways, and so this will be fine. I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just say I believe in him. That's what he wants us to do, and so that's easy. And Jesus, see, John 2 tells us that he knew what was in our hearts. John 2 would say this, that Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to any of them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in humankind. So when they say, I believe, Jesus goes, 
Okay, you sure about that? I know what's in your heart. And then we start verse 31. So they assume faith. Jesus knows their hearts. And not only does he know, but he is about to engage them in a way that will reveal something in them that even they are not aware of. So what is Jesus' challenge as we get going here this morning? Jesus' first challenge is this, that easy believism is not real. What do I mean by easy believism? It means just saying that you believe in Jesus. Like in our culture, we live next to people that are Christians, that say they are Christians. If you, if you have not asked them if they're Christians, just ask them, and they'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy believism, it is a life that says one thing and then does something completely different. Now, we're all hypocrites at our heart. I'm not talking about the occasional dabble in sin. That's all of us. I'm talking about saying one thing and then being someone else. That's easy believism. And so Jesus begins our text today by challenging easy believism. See, Jesus isn't looking for just believers, but followers and those that are truly his disciples. And so we read verse 31 and 32. And Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus basically says, I'm glad that you're at the point of saying that you believe, but this is going to cost you. Are you sure you're ready to be my true disciples? And of course, by the end of this, we realize they don't believe in him. At the end of next week's sermon, we'll realize that this is the setup for them trying to kill Jesus. They're about to pick up stones to try and kill Jesus, and it is all as a result of what he's about to lay down in today's text and next week's text. But look at what Jesus' challenge is to them, but, but to them and to, all, to us and to those that we'll invite over into our, 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 our tables. He says, you believe in me, but will you follow me? Because following me looks like this. Look at verse 31. This could be like a whole sermon right here. It's not going to be. But if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will find the truth. You will know it. And that truth will set you free. It's almost linear in how it progresses. Abide in my word. Know the truth. You will live in freedom. Abide in my word. Know the truth. Freedom. See, that's, that's the progression that Jesus is laying out for us and for the, the believing Jews here, right here in this passage. You want to follow me? You want to you say you believe in me? Well, abide in my word. Believe the things that I say about myself and about my Father. And when you do that, you will know the truth because I am the truth, he's going to say in John 14. And when you know me, surely you will be free. There is good news here, but it's also a great challenge for us. That he's inviting us past the shallow end of the waters and into the deep end where we truly can follow Jesus. So he's really black and white today. He, he uses words like last week and this week of being either a slave or being free. Of living a life of life, true life, or living a life that, that looks like death. Of living a life of truth or living a life of lies or living a life of light or living a life of darkness. With Jesus, in regards to how we live spiritual life, there's no gray. We make it gray because that's our experience. But for Jesus, he's going to put you in one of two camps. God as your father or the devil as your father. 
That's a, that's a tough truth to hear. That's why we heard from the front or second row, yikes. Yikes, indeed. Welcome back to me. I get to preach on your devil, basically. Can't wait. So the problem that we have here is that, really, though Jesus is clear in, in what he is saying. He's saying, if, you, if you're my disciples, you'll abide in my word, you will know the truth, and you will be free. The problem is, is that we don't live in freedom. The problem is that we're, we want to live somewhere in this, this manufactured middle where we, we, we go one to the other, depending on the day. Abide in my word. Know the truth. Free. Free indeed. True freedom. So most of us have not spent time in jail. I won't ask for uh, your hands to be raised if you've gone to jail. I know Eddie has spent a lot of time in jail, but that's because he was a deputy there for a long time. And uh, when I went to visit him there, I thought to myself, these people all want to get out and Lord help us if they do. So they were there. And I just remember thinking, this is a place where a lot of people don't want to spend a lot of time. Matter of fact, most of us are law-abiding citizens not because we are like really good people. It's really because we don't want to go to jail. Like we don't run into, I, yeah, maybe it's just me. I have a fantasy every once in a while where I just want like a guardrail around my car where if you do something to me, I can just go boop and just we'll see what happens. I don't do that. The Lord didn't make guardrails around our cars because it will put us in jail. And that's why we don't do those things. That's why you don't have a guardrail around your car because you'll go to jail. There are things like that that keep us on the straight and narrow because jail is a terrible place. If you've ever been to one, I'll guarantee you it is their cramped quarters and their constant being controlled that will drive them to want to get out. It is a sniff of freedom that, that will want them to get out. That's what drives them. It's what draws them out into the outside. And wouldn't it be absurd for someone to get out of prison to all of a sudden then go and commit the same crimes just to get put back in? That's an absurd way of thinking, and yet we see it all over the world. And as absurd as that is, how more absurd is it, Christian, brother, Sister, for us to taste the freedom that we have in Christ only to go back to the same sins that once enslaved us. See, how absurd is it for someone who get out of jail? How absurd would it be for me to be able to walk in a shoe to all of a sudden live the rest of my life in a boot or on a scooter? It would be absurd. You would wonder, I thought you were healed. I thought you didn't need that anymore. Surely by now. I mean, if I was still playing the same card to my wife, sorry, babe, can't walk up the stairs. Uh, it's 2020. Why can't you walk up the stairs? I don't know. I can't put the kids down. I don't even know what's going on up there. It would be absurd for me to continue to play that card two or three years later. And yet we, we, we do that in our spiritual lives. We go back to this thing that that enslaves us. We, it's comfortable. We know it. It's our old house. We can kind of know the nooks and crannies of this place, but it's not where we live anymore. The same thing that Paul would say in Romans 6. I have it in the NIV. I'll read you in the NIV. Romans 6, 16 through 18. It wasn't just Jesus that said it in verses 34 to 36. I'll read that first. That'd be good. Let's read Jesus' words, then we'll read Paul's words. Look what Jesus says. When we dabble in sin, when we go back to a habitual way of sinning, whether that's in our mind, whether it's with our tongue, our hands, our feet, our hearts, whatever it is that's leading us there, this is what Jesus says about our slavery to sin. Truly, truly. Josue would say this, for real, for real. For real, for real, I say to you, 
Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. That's red letter. I can't get rid of that, y'all. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There is a transfer of ownership here. You want to be a slave forever or you want to come be a son with the king? The slave is temporary. The son lasts forever. Verse 37, I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you, you do what you have heard from your father. He is about to lay it down for them because he knows the stakes are great. Paul would reiterate this again, Romans 6, 16 through 18. Write it down, jot it down. You can read it later. Our, our, our Technology is not working with us today, but that's okay. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you used to be slaves to sin. Used to be, past tense, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Friends, we are bound to one thing or another in this world, especially spiritually, bound to sin or bound to righteousness. And that which we are bound to ultimately gets expressed in how we live. You see, that's what Jesus will say, that there's this dichotomy that he's putting out there that Jesus and then Paul sets before us Follow Jesus, which begins with abiding his word. You'll find the truth, and that will lead you to freedom. But the reverse is also true. If you have no freedom, you are swimming, most likely, in a pool of lies about yourself, about God, about others. And the thing about that place, it's really easy to just be alone. It's really easy to isolate yourself into a place of lies. It's really difficult to live lies in the context of community. Because all of a sudden, if I don't like someone and yet I get close to them, I realize they're probably not that bad of a guy. But if I don't like somebody and I push them away, I can believe whatever I want to about them. The same thing can be said about God. The same thing can be said about truly who we are. The same thing can be said about our brothers, sisters, mothers, sons, wives, husbands. If we have no freedom, then we have to trace it back to we do not have the truth. And if we don't have the truth, we trace it back to we have not been abiding in the word of Jesus. So if you're enslaved to something, I bet you haven't opened up that Bible app in a while. If, if sin is starting to find itself to be really appealing, I'll bet you the weight of God's glory and the magnificence of his holiness has not been beheld in your life in quite some time. Somewhere along the lines, we've started to believe lies about who we are. We're not slaves to sin anymore. Slaves to righteousness. So if you don't abide, you have no anchor for your boat in the storms of life. You have no roots which hold true, hold your tree deep into the earth. And as a result of our lack of abiding in Jesus' word, we have no freedom from the old sins of sexual addiction, of substance abuse, of competition against one another, which show up in gossip and in slander and speech that only serves to protect and build ourselves 
That's how this whole thing comes out. So if that's you today, I would say this, that Jesus is giving us a good wake-up call. If you've been struggling with something for a long time, with consistency, whether it's substance abuse, pornography, whatever it is, this is a good wake-up call for all of us. Because when we dabble and we go back to the prison, we are willfully selling ourselves into slavery. And I would say this to all those that are struggling. It may seem like it's the only viable option in the moment to give in to that temptation. It may seem like this is the only way out is just to go ahead and, and yield to it and the temptation will be gone. And I'll just be done with it and I'll just deal with the consequences of condemnation and of guilt and of failure and whatever else comes next. And you just move on. It seems easier. And yet it leaves you empty, this temporary joy. 1 Corinthians 10.13 would remind us that no temptation has overtaken you, that, is not, that which is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he, has, he will also provide the way of escape, friends, that you may be able to endure it. Endurance will come when you believe that there is a God who is there providing you an escape route out of this world of temptation and a slavery to sin. It's there. But these Jewish believers are not moved by Jesus' challenge. It only strengthens their resolve to remain in slavery. And their slavery isn't necessarily uh, uh, an outright sin. Their slavery to their sin is thinking they're good enough without Jesus. And so they say things like this. Whenever Jesus is talking to them, you see this theme that starts to pop up in verse 33. We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. Verse 39, Abraham is our father. Verse 41b, we have one father, even God. Their first line of defense is to go back to their ancestors and to begin to start saying, we are good with God because we are Jewish. There's no other reason other than I belong to Abraham. And oh, by the way, we're Pharisees that now say that we're believing in you. So you know we live a pretty moral life. I recently reconnected with an old friend and he goes, you know, when it comes down to it, man, we all believe the same thing. Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and Christians, it's all the same. You can live your life basically out of any one of those. And I was like, you mean morality wise, right? He goes, yeah, morality. Yeah, you can get that pretty much from anywhere. But that's not what we're called to live. Jesus never said, follow me so that you can kind of make life work. Follow me so that this life will die in its importance and the next life will gain more importance than you've ever thought. That there's new eternal life that you can live right here, right now with a new power that all of a sudden I don't want to sin. Now all of a sudden I want to obey and love Jesus. So when he says hard things to me like, hey, if you sin, if you keep on sinning, you are of your father the devil, I go, yeah, I don't want to be that. I'm good. Like, I, I want to keep like, living and following you. Jesus draws this line in the sand, and they keep going back to Abraham. My goodness, my acceptance by God is found by being Jewish and, and being an offspring of Abraham. And the Jewish people believe that they are going to be saved for no other reason than the fact that they are Jewish. And oh, by the way, this is, this is crept into our narrative as Americans too. We support Israel because they're Israel. They're God's people. Okay, so when I read the New Testament, I see that God's people are those that believe in Jesus. 
Not a nation, not America, not Israel. I know all you Fox people right now are just killing me right now in your hearts. I'm good with that. Welcome back me. But look, I, I, okay, it's, it's, I'm, not, I'm not going against anything that we should more importantly believe. Instead, I'm saying, you want to believe those things? Fine. That's your prerogative. However, Look at what Jesus is calling us to, a citizenship in heaven, a following of a king, an allegiance and a loyalty to our king in heaven who reigns over all, and the nations, us too, will bow down to him as supreme and ruler. I'm not saying don't go and believe those things politically. You want to believe those things politically? Go for it. I find that Fox News gets me really riled up, or CNN or whatever, gets me really riled up, and I go, now what do I do? I Nothing. I'm frustrated. But when I, when I attune my heart to God's word, I go, now what do I do? I love, I'm kind, I bear with those that disagree with me, politically or otherwise. You see, it, the people of God are you. You're it. There's no hoping for a salvation. There's hoping for salvation for our people. We are those that believe in the Son of God whom he sent. And so we believe in him. It is going on today, this nationalism that we have. That's why Romans, and I'm not going to pull this up because it's kind of complicated. It's kind of like the last part of one verse and the first part of another verse. It's Romans 9, 6b through 7a because I'm a Bible nerd. Look what Paul says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, a.k.a. just because you are Jewish does not mean that you are true Israel. No, it is ones that are born from the promise of Isaac, of those that were born, of this spiritual seed that was given to us. And all of a sudden we would believe in Jesus, be grafted in and believe in him, follow him. So we may not be nationalists, we may not be Fox News people or whatever news source you have, but I will bet you that we are thinking to ourselves, I'm really not that bad. I'm doing pretty good. Everyone's got to hang up. This is one thing that I, I know I've said to myself. I know that I believe that others have said to themselves. Everyone's got to hang up. Blank is mine. Or we find that our mood changes on how much stuff we get done. Or if we're respected by that person. These are all signs of misplaced trust. And the root of all this is the same as it was for these Jews in this passage. My goodness is not dependent upon Jesus, but instead upon my performance or my pretending that I'm not that bad. You see, anything that does not boast in Jesus' work is a boast against Jesus' work and a faith in something other than the person of Jesus. And if that's not far enough for these Jewish believers, that they would say, hey, I belong to Abraham, I belong to Abraham, I'm, I'm Abraham's offspring, and Jesus is going, okay, you're offspring of him, but you're not really kids of his. See, I'm his son, and I know who my brothers and sisters are. And if that's not far enough for these believing Jews, just read with me the first part of verse 41. He says, you are doing the works of your, that your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. What's, what are they saying to him? Your mom, she's not who she says she is. She ain't a virgin. You think you're all pure, Jesus? We're not born of sexual immorality. You are. They're getting him. And all of a sudden, everything changes. 
And Jesus ain't playing nice anymore. And that's why he says, you're doing the works of your father. Oh, by the way, you want to know who he is? He's the devil. And all of a sudden, he, because you, you want to get like bad on a dude, go talk about his mama, right? Like that'd be the thing that would happen when I was a kid. Like, yo, your mama this. Oh no, we're going to fight now. Here we go. I'm not saying Jesus is ready to fight, but I think he's ready to fight, at least with his words, and he's going to bring the truth. So he says, hey, you got a questionable, questionable birth. You're virgin mom. You, you're tainted, Jesus. You can't sit here and talk to us this way. And I would just say this, that the virgin birth is absolutely essential in understanding the identity of Jesus. If you think it's just a story, we're going to find ourselves on the wrong side of this story in John 8. So what's the wrong side? I'm glad you asked. See, our actions will prove our ancestry. If we say that we are of Abraham, then Jesus will say, well, then do the works that Abraham did. Exercise your faith, trusting in the child of the promise, which for Abraham, that was Isaac. And all of a sudden for us, the child of the promise is Jesus. Trust in him. But Jesus is going to turn the heat up. Let's read it. Verse 42 to 47. You see, if God were your father, you would love me. If you're a follower of me, if you say you believe in me, then you're going to love Jesus. Do the things that Jesus said to do. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You, oh, here we go. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Here's what you're trying to do. He was a murderer, so you're trying to murder me. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. You don't have anything to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, just like when you're lying right now, he speaks out of his own character, just like you are. For he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, oh, Jesus stands in contrast to all lies we would ever be tempted to believe. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you can convict me of sin? If I tell the truth, then... Why do you not believe me? Because you've got another agenda. Whoever is of God hears the words of God, and the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. See, Jesus knows that our actions prove our ancestry. He turns up the heat in verse 42 through 47, and there is no turning back after this exchange. Instead, they are ready to kill him at the end of this chapter, and he slips away. But he's very clear. We either act like our God is in heaven, and that is our God, or we act like our Father is of the devil and the devil himself. See, if you ever struggle with sin, it'd be a good idea to read 1 John. It's a very black and white book, and in fact, in that book, verse 8 and 10, 8 through 10 of, of chapter 3, it says this. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Y'all hear that? The reason that Jesus appeared in your life is to destroy the work of the devil. I feel like we should get Pentecostal up in here on that one. But y'all are all like just Baptist is what it's coming down to. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. You don't habitually just keep on doing that thing. 
For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Notice the, the, the present participle. You can't keep on. You can't practice. You can't practice. It's just a habitual way of living. That's not what a Christian looks like. So you see a theme in this passage as well as in 1 John, same author, that those who would truly believe in God don't just perform lip service. They can't help but to do something about their faith. They love Jesus. They love his word. They stand in the truth, and they live in freedom. So friends, one of two responses probably lands on you. The first one, if you are a believing person in this room, and by, by believing, I'm putting quotes around it, meaning you probably say you believe. You don't know that you actually don't believe yet. Your heart has somehow deceived you into thinking that you have genuine faith. And yet when we look at your life, when you're brothers and sisters, and when you can take a real good look at like your life on your best day, there's, there's no love for Jesus. There's no desire to obey him. For you, the jig is up. Jesus stands before you and he says, would you believe? Would you not just believe, but would you, would you, would you wrap your life around trusting and failing in the grace of God? Not trusting your goodness, not throwing caution to the wind and apathy and just going, well, I mean, it'll all work out in the end. It's fine. Jesus' words today should jar you into a new reality of trust in the Son of God who stands ready to set you free. If you can get past the offensive nature of Jesus' words and respond to his invitation of freedom, what would your life look like? Don't you want that life? That's the first response, is just to trust, to obey, to truly follow Jesus, to abide in his word, to follow the truth, and to be in freedom. And for those that are not just believers, but followers, there's a lot more questions to ask. Are you abiding in the word of Jesus? Perhaps you need to dust off your Bible, get into a growth group, and continue or begin reading the Scriptures. You will not find the truth, and therefore you will not live in freedom if you don't first dive deep or shallow anything into the Word of God. You want a good place to start? Read the book of Mark. If you've not ever read the book of Mark, or follow along in the book of John, or read the book of 1 John. That'll set you straight. That'll get you on the straight and narrow. These things are easier to understand. Are you abiding in the word of God? First, that's the thing. And secondly, are you following the truth which you find in the word of God? Or are you doing some kind of gymnastics to get around what you have found? All of a sudden, the Bible isn't what you think it is. Jesus isn't who you thought he was. He's much more offensive than you may have thought. And all of a sudden, are you going to be okay with that Jesus? Or are you going to do gymnastics, cartwheel, turn, round off, flip-flop, I don't know what it is, and figure out another way to get around him? Are you going to follow the truth? And will that truth then now live and allow you to live in freedom? Are you engaging? Are you engaging those around you who say they believe but don't have a life of faith? We cannot, friends, we cannot sit idly by and watch our neighbors, watch our friends and family live and think that they are okay when you know deep down it's not okay. There's got to be at least an awkward conversation, right? 
at least like an awkward conversation like I had while I was gone. I was around a lot of non-believers over this last month, which oddly enough refreshed me. And just asking them odd questions. So tell me about your plan to like grow in the faith in your new marriage. Uh, All right. Now I know how to pray for you. It's your wedding day, so I'm probably not going to challenge you today. I'm 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 going to say something later. We have at least an awkward conversation that is rooted in spiritual care for those that just want us not to care. You see, the reality is they want that because their eyes are blinded by the devil, truly. A lot of devil talk today. I know it's creepy, but it's in the Bible. And so 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 would say this, even if our gospel is veiled, that when we share the truth with them, they can't see it because they're perishing, they're dying. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But good news, y'all. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's not up to convince people or convert people or convict people of sin. That's the Holy Spirit's job, and he will do what he said he will do. The last place we stopped on our vacations was Boulder, Colorado. Anybody been to Boulder? Show of hands. Yeah. Weird place. Weird place, right? Um, like, if Austin's weird, this is Austin on steroids. And so you go to Boulder, and you walk around, and my 10-year-old, who you all know, she got baptized on Easter, is new to the faith. She's walking around with a very astute eye, and she goes, all of a sudden, she, like, she just gets this lip. And she just starts looking at me. I was like, babe, you all right? These idols, they're everywhere. I'm like, yeah, babe, like this place doesn't love Jesus. They're, they're everywhere, dad. Well, I mean, there, there's idols. Look at them. Look, they're right there. There's idols everywhere. Right below Ben and Jerry's. In the basement of Ben and Jerry's is something. Idols. And she's just angry. I had to sit her down because I'm with some people in my family that may not believe the same things that we believe. And so I had to sit her down and go, hey, girl, we're not going to judge them, right? Right? We're not going to be so angry with them because the devil has blinded them. And the only reason my little 10-year-old girl, little Reese, the only reason why you believe is because Jesus was so merciful is to open your eyes. And so what are we going to do, Reese? We're going to walk around in judgment of this place. We're going to pray and ask God to have mercy on the city of Boulder. We're going to ask God to have mercy in such a way that he might send church planters to Boulder, Colorado. Stephen, you in here, bro? You up for another move? Boulder, Colorado. We got to know. We got a negative. Okay. The wife says no. Anybody else? Wife says no. It's out. Anybody? We, I mean, someone needs to go to Boulder. There's one Acts 29 church in Boulder. There needs to be at least 10 more. We need to send people to places like that, not just to the suburbs of the Bible hub of the world, but to send people to places like that, that they're going to get their teeth kicked in when they stand up and they start to open air preach, which is very normal for people there. And they go, hey, you say you believe, but you are of your father, the devil. That'll get some people's attention. But be careful what comes next. Might be ready to kill you. People that we need to raise up to send to places like that will know that it is upon God's mercy that people will come to him. Do we believe that? 
Are we willing to, to do what Jesus has done today? You just go, but you say you believe. And I just need to share the truth with you. I don't see it. I'm not trying to be judgmental, but just this is what the Bible says, that, that by your fruits we will know you. And so the fruit of your life just doesn't look like what Jesus says it should look like. And I'm not saying mine does either. There's no judgment here. But perhaps it's time to examine. Perhaps it's time to look. Perhaps it's time to trust and obey and follow. Look, if that's you in this room today, we want to talk to you. Before communion, after communion, I'm going to be over here. It doesn't really matter. I probably won't be standing, but just come. We want to talk to you. Before you get there, we're going to pray, and then we're going to, we're going to remember the, 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 that what Jesus did through the elements of communion. This is, this is life and death. This is slavery and freedom. This is light and dark. That's why when, I, when, when Jesus is saying all these things, I'm, I'm getting adrenaline pumping through me because this is the real deal. Let's pray. Father, we find ourselves like Reese many days about other people's sin. We want to get mad. We want to get angry. We want to tell them the truth. But the reality is that first needs to start in our own hearts as we realize what you've rescued us from. Slavery, darkness, blindness, death. For me, I just think about the, the, the wandering that I had without you. And yet when you came, you made my heart alive. You made our hearts alive that would believe. And now all of a sudden we have this newfound freedom and newfound desires to want to read and want to obey and want to love and want to, want to share this good news with our neighbors. Somehow along the way we get tripped up in the, in, in the world and in our life's responsibilities and, and paying our mortgage and making sure our kids have all the entertainment that they need, and we forget what our one mission is. As I have loved you, you said to your disciples, so you should love one another. This is how the world will know that you're my followers by your love for one another. So let us love one another. Let us love you. Let us be found abiding in your truth. And where we're not, I pray that you would show us the way. Help us. As we respond today in this song, I pray that you'd help us find the joy that is truly found in being sons and daughters of God, not by our own efforts, but by your son, Jesus. We love you. We trust you. In Christ's name.